Welcome to the Student of the Game podcast, where we break down the life, strategy, and advice of successful individuals who are students of their own game and masters of their own craft. Thanks for tuning in. Let's get to the episode. Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to the Student of the Game podcast. I'm Tim Stone with my co-host Nick Galbraith and Ian Cushing. Today we've got a special guest, Cody Davis. He's a 21-year-old real estate investor. Crazy story. The stuff, the strategies he's going to go over is going to blow your mind. But Cody, thank you very much for being here with us. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Excited to connect with you guys. Yeah, so glad to have you here. And uh, we caught you just a little bit before going on the uh, Bigger Pockets podcast. Are you allowed to talk about that? Can we say that? I don't know. I guess. Uh, okay, th- this will probably come out after that one or after it's done. But all right, we're um, good. Yeah, yeah. So we, we caught you just before that. So this is uh, you know <laughs> lucky chance for us to dive into some of the things you're going to talk about there, which is going to be a great episode. But first, let's start it out. Go ahead and uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, how you became an entrepreneur, how you got into real estate. What was your upbringing like? Yeah, so I'm a 21-year-old. I ended up dropping out of college, born and raised in Tacoma. It's just south of Seattle, Washington. And I I didn't come from a real estate background, don't have any family or friends that are in the space. And so I I just kind of had to get into it. I learned about real estate investing through reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad grew up thinking that the government owned everything and that there weren't individuals that could actually own the skyscrapers and own some of the apartment buildings. And so that was a big learning curve, but Red Ridge Dad poured out at a young age. I was, I want to say 14 years old, got super excited about jumping into the real estate space and then realized I was 14. So I put the book back down for a while, but uh, eventually picked it back up into high school. I had a pretty cool high school teacher he was a attorney, and I thought that lawyers were, you know, the, the people that made all the money on this planet. And he said, you know, I made a lot of money as an attorney, but I made more money in real estate. And so that's what really got me interested. And I jumped into the real estate space as an agent and started learning. Cool. And I've seen on your Instagram that you've met uh, Robert Kiyosaki. What's that like? Robert Kiyosaki is a cool guy. I think he's changed as he's aged. Some Mm -hmm. of his priorities might have shifted where originally it was just by real estate. Now it's diversified into precious metals. And I think that's great. There's a place for that, but that's not what I'm interested in investing in. But overall, Mm -hmm. it it was cool to meet with the guy and bounce some ideas off of. Um, I got to meet with Ken McElroy as well. They were together there in Belize. So that was a fun trip. That's wow. super awesome. That's, that's and uh, Cody, were you, were you playing any sports? You know, in high school. Yeah, so I've actually I've been around the block with a couple different sports. I used to play baseball. I played soccer for eleven years. I was a, a wrestler. And, I could uh, I could tell that. I I could I had a sense that you were a wrestler. Yeah, so I did uh, wrestling for a little bit. Ended up uh, almost breaking my back. Wow. So that that screwed me up pretty bad. But you get thrown uh, or something. Was it, a, yeah, was it a throw or? Yeah, it was. It was one of my best friends. He slammed me during a oh, just a friendly practice, and we're still friends today. But that was a bit annoying. So I got to work through that. I, I did parkour. Still doing parkour. It's going That's on awesome. almost twelve years now. And uh, so jumping off buildings, doing flips. Somehow I've never broken a bone yet. Knock on wood. Uh, and then I was a diver. So I did diving for four years off the board. That's wow. crazy. That's crazy. My my girlfriend and her sister are divers back in the day. And my girlfriend, Sarah, she would not do any kind of flips. I mean, she wasn't about it, but her sister is is all about it. And we watched the Olympic trials and that is just absolutely crazy um, what they do in diving. What, what What's like the highest jump is like 50 foot or something like that? Or is it a little bit higher than that? The highest they... I know of is 10 meter, but I didn't really follow any of the high up because that wasn't my goal. Yeah. It was... I was a swimmer. I did water polo as well. And they said to join the swim team and I hate swimming. I mean, I'm a, I'm a good swimmer. I can tread with the best of them, but uh, I don't like swimming back and forth over and over for two hours straight. 
So I saw a guy diving off the board, and I was like, that looks more fun. Can I go do that? They said yes. And so I got out, stopped doing water polo, and started diving. Very cool. And how long do you stick with that with, with diving? Uh, that was a four-year career. That was just through high school. Nice, man. So you kind of you kind of plunged into college, and did you do a couple years in college, or was it just kind of freshman semester? Like, ah, I don't know if this is for me. It, I don't remember what the terms were. It was either two quarters or two semesters, mm-hmm. but uh, I was out. And I got in. To, oh, sorry. Go ahead. What were you going to school for when you came in? I was interested in business, and I, I've learned something over the past couple of years actually running a business since that you can't really learn that in school. I've got a, mm-hmm. a friend who went all the way four years in business at one of the top schools and he walked away knowing less than I knew when he met me and he'd been doing that for a long time. He, he worked through corporate at CoStar mm. and was one of the higher up sales guys there. And he, he's a phenomenal business person, but there's just, there's an operation in theory and then a practical application side of the business that you're not going to learn until you just jump in. And most people get stuck in the theory is what I've found for both real mm-hmm. estate and business startup. So I left college and jumped straight <clears throat> into being a, a real estate agent and eventually ended up buying my first rental property later that year. Yeah. And, and, and through that process, would you mind walking us through how that natural progression went through becoming an agent to realizing, you know, I want to own something and, and then buying it. Would you mind talking us through that? Yeah. So it was definitely by accident. I wasn't a very good real estate agent in part because I didn't have any family or friends in the business. I didn't know of anybody that was in a financial capacity that could actually transact, that could buy Mm. a rental property. And I didn't want to sell houses. I felt like if I devoted any attention to selling houses, that's what I would gravitate to. And since I've never really had a, a paycheck, I've never been tied to that. If I got gravitated towards consistent income just through selling houses, it'd become addicting and I'd get stuck. So Mm -hmm. I focused primarily on the multifamily space and it took me six months, but I sold my first duplex. I I represented the buyer and I sold that to them. They've done very well. They bought it for 300,000 and today I want to say it's worth 450, like two and a half years later. So they've done very well uh, considering they they put 20% down. Um, and then shortly thereafter, I sold another property and then I sold a, a little fix and flip. And then I ended up buying my first rental, which was a 12 plex. But, uh, yeah, that, that was about it. I just kind of fell into it and it, it originally came from the idea that there was a broker in the office who was selling a 22 unit apartment portfolio mm-hmm. to a client. And that client didn't end up pursuing it. And it was seller financed, so I didn't need to qualify for a bank. My mentor at the time said, what if you just bought this? I was like, I don't have the money. It was $300,000 down. He said, what if we raised it, which was hard money. It was 12% Mm -hmm. interest. But it still would have cash flowed multiple thousands of dollars a month. And I was like, sure. And so we took that to the seller, and the seller said no. (laughs) (laughs) So here I was thinking I was going to be financially free at 19. And that that deal fell apart. So I ended up finding a 12-plex. It was on the market. Offered them a seller finance deal, and they took it. And I bought it. So kind of, I mean, just backing up a little bit. So you said you had a mentor when you were an agent. How did, was this an agent that was a mentor? Or was this somebody that you sought after and was like, I just need to pursue a mentor just for my personal development um, and growing in the space and just... um, you know, finding the next best version of yourself. Yeah. So he was a real estate broker and he was my mentor at the time. No longer is. Mm. I, I kind of left that space just due to differences in how we operate stuff. And so, uh, I, I'm a firm believer in what gets you to one place won't get you to the next level. And so worked with him, made him some money. He helped me make some money, learned how to build my skill base and buy some real estate and now he's doing different things and I'm doing different things. And, uh, but having a mentor is by far the most important piece of the puzzle. Anybody who wants to do this and be the one man show or the one gal show, like it's, that's just a mistake. Yeah. 
That's super powerful. And I hope our, our listeners take that in. And um, so you, you found a 12 unit on the market and you're just like seller finance. Was that, was that like in the listing description or is that, um, you know, something you, you and your mentor kind of uh, talked about before pursuing that? It was in the description, yeah. which is how I found it. I just put in keyword seller financing and this was end of 2019. So it was a couple months before I turned 20 and I was just like, you know what, let's just go do it. So I closed that the 28th of October back in 2019. And that was a 10% down deal. Ended up borrowing the down payment from a private investor at 12% interest. And it cash flowed a thousand bucks a month day one. That's crazy. <laughs> that's awesome. And um, Cody, would you just mind explaining what seller financing is? That's that's the first time we've ever had it on the podcast. So if you um, would just explain it to our members, that'd be awesome. Yeah, so the seller finance route is pretty essential for folks who don't qualify for financing traditionally, which mm-hmm. you know, I was looking at it from the lens of a 19-year-old who had $3,000 in the bank. You know, not a lot of money, and I didn't have an extensive credit report, never borrowed for a car, never had a real credit card. And so the seller in this case, and I don't know if it's this way in all states, but it, it is in Washington, there's a due on sale clause mm. with your real estate. As soon as you sell, you have to pay off your debt. So when they are going to sell it, if they have a lot of debt, you have to pay that off. Well, if they have no debt, they can act as your bank. You have a promissory note and a deed of trust if you're doing the, the seller financing route, or you can do a contract for deed. There's lots of ways to structure it. But uh, there's a promissory note, which is my promise to pay them. And the deed of trust, which just says, okay, well, what's that note worth? Well, it's backed by the real estate that I'm buying from them. So give them a little bit of a down payment. If I cannot fulfill the, the terms of my note, if I can't fulfill my promise to them to pay them back, they will take whatever the collateral is, which in this case was the property. So they acted as my bank. There was no ever money transfer. Like they wrote me a million dollar loan. It was my promise to pay, but they didn't actually give me a million dollars because I would just be giving it back to them. So it's essentially made up money, and therefore you can make up any terms that you can think of as long as it's mutually agreed upon and drafted by an attorney. It's pretty fun stuff. Yeah, boom. That's that's what I'm talking about, man. <laughs> yeah. That's so exciting. Yeah. Um, when it comes it, sorry. No, it's um, it, No, my bad. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say, yeah, I mean, it is literally if you can think it, you can do it. I've got about five point seven million dollars of seller finance debt today. And some of it is ten year balloons, some of it's fully amortized thirty year fixed rate no balloons, which is just ridiculous. Yeah. So there's lots of ways to to make this thing happen. What are the, what are some of those other deals look like that you went after? Did you have to approach the sellers with the idea of seller finance on a lot of them, or did you mostly find people who had that in mind from the start? I had to bring it up. I had to kind of will it into existence. It's like this is the only option, so let's do a deal. But mm-hmm. I also never approached a seller trying to buy their property, which is if we want to talk about that today. That's kind of the secret sauce of how I do everything that I do. I've never asked a seller directly over the phone to sell me their property. What do you mean by that? Let's unroll that. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. So, so you don't confront sellers and you know, you don't cold call them and say, Hey, you know, would you entertain an offer on your property? There's a, there's a secret sauce that Cody's about to to tell all of us. Yeah. So this is something I see a lot of wholesalers, a lot of my friends do, which is, yeah, I have found it to be, it's almost the equivalent of hitting your head against a concrete wall trying to break it. It's just not a good use of time and it's brain damage. And the amount of reps you have to perform when you're calling someone to get them to sell you something, it's like, yeah, if I put myself in their shoes, I bought this property 30 years ago and I'm going to sell it to the first Joe Schmo that calls me up. It's like I built the relationship my whole life with this property, and now I'm going to sell it to some random person who calls me up. I When I first realized that, I was like, there's no way that's going to work consistently. So I call them up, and they're usually going to have their guard on. They're like, okay, there's this young guy trying to get into real estate. He's calling me because I have property. So I overcome that objection. Like, hey, I'm not 
trying to buy your property. I actually don't know how. But I saw you own this. It's something I've never done before. And I want to learn how you did this. How'd you get started? They'll share a little bit about it. We'll have a discussion. But really, they're not going to trust me until we cultivate some relationship. And that's not going to happen as long as I'm some just voice over the phone. Mm -hmm. So my objective of every meeting is to, of every call is to book a meeting. I want to go book a coffee meeting. And in that, more so than just trying to get the property, I want to learn what they've cultivated, all their skills over the course of 20, 30, 40 years of being in the game. Because now I get to compress all the, that time into a couple meetings and it advances my position, regardless of getting the property. People that own real estate know people that own real estate. People that own houses have friends that own houses. And people that own 30-unit apartment buildings have friends that own similar types of real estate. It just seems to be a, a trend. And so if I can build skills and connections instead of just buying their deal as a transaction, I'm going to be a lot further along than everyone else that calls them up. And even if they do get the deal, it's like, I don't need the deal. I need the skills and I need the connections. So you, you, you can cold call at scale. And that's just like, like you said, pounding your head on a brick wall, or you can build relationships because that's what it is. They're, uh, you know, they're going to do business with people that they know, like, and trust, not just some Joe Schmo over the phone that they've never met in person. Yeah, and then the the three pieces on that. It's like you got to be relatable when you're talking with them. Like if you're relatable, people will talk with you. If you have targets, they'll work with you. And if you have significance behind those targets, they'll buy into your ideas. That's the most important piece. People try and get others to sell them stuff. I get people to buy into who I am. And that's why I get opportunities that other people can't touch. Like just south of Seattle bought a place four and a half percent down three percent interest because of a mutual connection of a relationship that i built and you know three percent interest is phenomenal on a contract four and a half percent down is ridiculous it was a million one purchase and so it was not a ton of money down comparatively to the price uh, i got that because i had built a connection with this other guy i was relatable to where he'd talk with me we started working together because we had similar targets and then I shared a little bit about the significance behind what I'm doing. I want to go retire my mom. I have a whole bunch of other ventures. I want to be able to help out in the community. He resonates with that. And he bought into my ideas and brought me into an opportunity. That's what people miss. It's like they try and get people to sell when you should get them to buy into who you are and what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And Cody, can we take a second and just, um, you know, learn about, you know, what your end goal is and, and who you are? Um, I, I know you just kind of skipped over that, but just your significance um, and what your end goal is. I, I know you said you mentioned um, retire your mom, but can you just elaborate on that a little bit more? Yeah. So it's the, I, I grew up with the cycle of, I had family who makes decent money, but they have a lot of expenses due to health issues. And so, mm-hmm. you know, sister got diagnosed with type one diabetes at a very young age, which was unfair to her. But while it's unfair to her, it was not good for the financial picture. My family had a div- family had a divorce when I was young, so that was financially expensive. And so I have my mom that's trying to take care of the household, and you know now you got these health issues with type one diabetes that no one in our family had ever gone through before. So it's like all these unknowns and all these bills. So she made it a lot of money, but she needed to to pay all the bills. And so I want to be able to give her something that she hasn't had before, which is, you know, not having to worry about any of that. Yeah. And um, I've had family members with cancer, uh, ALS, if you're familiar with that. So there's there's some organizations I want to be able to give back to to try and feel like I'm making an impact. And whether I am or not, I get to a position where I can financially contribute enough to actually make an impact. I don't know. But that is what I'm working towards doing. It's amazing. What did, what did your mom think about um, when you bought your first real estate deal? Well, I mean, they didn't really know what to think because they don't, yeah. they don't know anybody who's ever done that. And yeah. they're, they're kind of like, okay, well, just be careful. And, and then I bought my second 12-plex and they're like, okay, uh, you're doing good, but still be careful. I bought yeah. my third building and then I bought 
the 38 plex and a handful of other complexes ever since and now they're just rooting for me to make it happen they're not worried about me being as careful because they see a proven track record that i'm buying real estate that makes money consistently and Mm -hmm. uh, they just want to see what i can do to go hit those targets it's amazing man thank you thank you for diving into that it's a it's a blessing um and kind of the the various assets you were talking about cody i know um, you know, apartments is of interest to you. And I know you kind of mentioned, you know, farmland and, you know, different asset types. Um, so what's kind of your direction with that? I mean, is it, uh, I mean, I guess, you know, what is your direction as far as assets that you want to pursue to seller finance? I'm only buying multifamily right now. Mm-hmm. I I'm looking at other ventures because there's opportunities for yeah. the future. It's like plant an acorn, let it grow. But the, the big thing I'm buying right now is apartment buildings. I have closed on to date 81 apartment units that I've got myself. That's uh, without syndicating. I'm not a huge fan of syndicating. It's a phenomenal way for people to get in the game, but that has not been my route. Uh, But it's a good venture to learn. So I haven't done that, uh, but picked up the 81 units, seller financed, never used a bank loan. I'm working on a... That's what yeah. I'm talking about, dude. That's awesome. That's so awesome. 81 <laughs> units. Sell it. No banks. Dude, congrats, dude. That is that is pre- so awesome. I appreciate that. And then I'm also working on a 15-unit apartment building on the water right now. It's another seller yeah. finance transaction. And then a there's a 14-unit complex that is also seller finance. So I'm, I'm working on putting together a handful of deals. I've got about a 500-unit pipeline that's set up for next year it's all owner contract so it's about a 40 million dollar volume but um that's a zero down transaction what'll probably happen is it'll probably do 10 10 to 20 percent of that next year it's it's the goal whether that happens or not it's going to depend solely on you know what happens in 2022 we'll we'll see you know people pass away or and usually the people doing this are a little older so if everything just sticks to plan goal is to be at 200 units uh, by just capturing a portion of that business for next year but that'll be without a bank and my goal is to prove to people that you can do things a little bit less conventionally so is that a, a bunch of deals all lined up or is that sort of one one deal those 500 units or it, it, it's a pipeline of you know tons of different people tons of different deals or wh- what's that situation that's that's a handful of different people that have accumulated real estate and paid it off. So it's probably, I want to say five or six different people that would be selling that real estate. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, it's different sizes. I mean, there's houses in that unit count. There's 15 unit complexes there. Um, I didn't include this, but there's also storage facilities that they have that they could liquidate on a contract. Uh, but th- there's a lot more owner contracts out there than people think. You can do very low money down. I mean, you can do zero percent down. You can do five, ten percent down. There's ways to cross collateralize stuff, so it costs you nothing at closing if you need to do that for short term. Uh, it's it's pretty fun, but I mean, what I'm trying to establish is like normalize the impossible and show people that you know within five years. I'm I'm only two years into this, so we'll see what happens in the next three, but. Within five years, someone can build a hundred thousand dollar a month passive income, starting with three thousand dollars. So I'm trying to prove that so that more people don't won't need to really worry about it, and their parents won't either. I'm hoping you're going to write a book one day. I have a feeling that a lot of people are going to know your name in the next ten or fifteen years. I have a, a book that's being drafted. It it's kind of well, not kind of is based solely off of how I find off-market opportunities. I mean, I, sh- I shared a little bit about the how, but there, it goes a lot deeper than that. And then there's three drills I've found that are just phenomenal. Maybe we can sync up offline. That's like the super, super secret sauce. But uh, that is how I do everything that I do. And it, it's derived from five questions, a circle, and a square. And so that'll be the title of the book. Wow. Five wow. questions, a circle, and a square? Yeah. Oh, dude, I'm going to buy the first copy, hopefully. (laughs) Oh, there we go. Yeah, put me me down on the pre-order list. All right, let's do it. 
right. So Cody, I, I was I was interested more in uh, you've tapped on the no banks involved. Uh, obviously, you've been using seller finance, but um, when it comes to those seller finance deals and you're putting down those down payments, I know you mentioned using hard money as well as some private money. Would you mind breaking down your typical uh, financing and how you usually do those deals? Yeah. So the first thing is there wouldn't be any typical financing because every every single deal is different. My first deal, I had no money, so I had to use hard money. And I don't recommend people do that unless they absolutely have to, if you feel like you're in a position where you have to. Um, but you'd only be in that position if you haven't studied a couple different routes. There's so many ways to do this. The most recent deal that I did, I brought in an investor. They put $90,000 into the deal. And I maintained ownership of it. But it's positioned as uh, the, the promissory note is it, it's essentially an LLC operating agreement backed by my ownership, meaning that if I fail to pay them back to the specified terms, I forfeit my ownership mm. in the asset. So they're they're fronting the, the capital for the acquisition. I have a certain obligation I got to make back to them over the course of five years but I get a hundred percent of the cash flow for five years, which hmm. when executed properly should total out to 150, $180,000. And so I get to capitalize on hundred percent of the cash flow. And the upside for the person who put the money in is if I fail, they're buying assets on today's value for the, the low money down for the owner contract. So they're basically getting a huge discount because of time. And are, sorry if I missed it. Are you paying them interest along the way? No interest payments. No interest. So, so they so they only make money if you fail. Or no, or... they make money if I succeed. So the the outline of this is the for actual numbers. They put in ninety thousand dollars. That was my down payment to to purchase this asset, which was. It was 10% down to to go purchase this. So seller financed, longer term note. And so they funded over, your gap, essentially. Yep. They funded the essential down payment that I needed to close the transaction. And I am fronting all the reno costs. It's a value add deal. So what I said to them is, look, we're going to structure this in a way where you put a 90 today. And I'll pay you back 180 in five years. I'm going to get 100% of the cash flow. And yes, that's expensive money. But the beauty of it is, is the real estate pays for it because I bought in a great location with great margins. So it's expensive for me, except for it gives them a huge win on our first transaction together. And my real estate, which is funded by my tenants, tenants are really nice people. They'll pay off your debts for you. They are paying for me to pay back the other uh, investor. And if I miss my projections, I got paid cash flow for five years and the investor gets phenomenal properties that have been updated because I have certain timelines to update the property. So it's a win-win for everybody. That's just a creative way. And there's some digger deep in to be done on that. Like, I, I don't know that I could actually portray that over just a, a call like this, but um, there's, if you can think it, you can do it when it comes to the creative finance stuff. Yeah, that's great. And I, I think I may have just missed the part where you said you paid them back uh, after five years because uh, I, I do remember now that you did say that. Um, but that's phenomenal. You, you're yeah. creating wealth out of uh, almost nothing, essentially. You are paying for the value add, but you, you're not bringing the, the down payment to the table. You're not qualifying for a bank loan. You're just putting in work and at this point supplying capital, but uh, you've done a few transactions at this point. Yeah. And, and another example of a deal, like I bought that 38 plex, I raised $300,000 for that. And I, I have my, my buddy Christian in that deal. We're, we're the partners on that. And we put uh, our money in for renovation. We got it for 2 million bucks. Every single person we've ever talked to said we overpaid, which is fine. They, people focus on price too much. If you focus on a location, you'll do better than if you just focus on price. So we bought the single best location, single best corner in Moses Lake. But the building is terrible. <laughs> it is 
it's a piece of crap. I mean, it's the worst building you could buy. Terrible <laughs> reputation. And we were like, okay, whatever. That's that is what it is. But we can fix the building. We can't fix the location, so might as well buy the best location. We bought it for two million bucks. We put three hundred thousand dollars down on a contract, and the previous owners were older, and they've they've made really good money off of it since they got it in the early nineties. But uh, it was their time to exit, and so they wanted some money at closing. So we gave them three hundred grand down. That was the money that Christian and I raised, and backed by the the real estate, and then. We looked at the rents and we're like, okay, people are paying 380, 450, and then there was one that they just re-rented for 900 dollars. Like, there's a little bit of a discrepancy here on 38 units. And we did the math, and once it's leased up and we have deferred maintenance that's taken care of, it's a 4.2 million dollar building. So oh. we did that. We did so- that same two for one on the 300k. We're like, if we're half wrong. And we only get it to be worth $3.1 million. We still make a million dollars. We still make a million bucks. And our payback to the investors is on a two-for-one is $600,000. We're funding all the rehab. We're handling all the management, all the maintenance. They get a phenomenal two-for-one in five years. And if we hit our projections, we have enough equity to refinance and keep it ourselves. Right? So win-win for everybody. The real estate pays for the real estate. And we're set. That's where getting creative wins for people because that two million dollars, no one could have paid that if they were just gonna, you know, buy it and whatever. Uh, it, it wouldn't have made sense with the bank. The bank may not have even financed it. Is also a big thing. Is the bank may not have financed that deal they uh, have. at two million dollars. So you had to be creative to get it. Uh, yeah, it's really um, provides more opportunity because you're going after things that other people can't do. Yeah, and it's just about flipping the Rubik's Cube. I mean, if you've got a coffee mug, I mean, there's one side. If you're sitting from one side of the table, you will not see the handle. So it helps to have other people in different positions that can see around the whole mug because you can see every opportunity. When we're looking at a deal, I have Christian as a partner. I could have done it without him, but that would have been a mistake because he's going to see different sides of that transaction that I'm not going to and I'm going to miss. So while I'm really good at the numbers and I know how to analyze the the analytics behind a a piece of real estate, he just has life history and life experience that I don't have. He's going to see different economic efficiencies that we can improve. And so um, it's another piece of advice. I would work with a partner instead of doing everything lone wolf. Um, Just want to throw that out there too. Yeah, absolutely. And and Cody, um, this kind of came up in my mind. Um, I know, is it, it's not a contract for deed, but it's, is it the contract for deed where you have the, um, the equity, right? So you can depreciate the asset if you hold title. Is that contract for deed? And is it the promissory note and deed of trust that you can't do that on? Or am I messing it up? So I'm, I'm in a lean theory state. Okay. To kind of segue off or on that. Um, There's title theory and lean theory. And and in Washington, Essentially, I'm going to take title even though I owe money, mm. and I, I can depreciate the asset. I, I mean, I work with my CPA because I don't know the logistics of how all that works, um, like for exact depreciation numbers and all that. But um, I am on title, and my LLCs are on title. And then the lender, regardless of whether it was an owner contract or whether it was a bank, they're going to be listed on first lien position, and then if other people end up leaning that property, like let's say I didn't pay a contractor and they put a lien against the property, they'd be in second position. And then if I got a hard money lender, they'd be in third position. It's in the order that it originates and then it can subordinate. It gets a little bit deeper into that. But uh, when it comes to the owner financing piece, I am on title. And at least for all the deals that I've ever done in this state, um, different states are probably different. On a contract for deed, I actually just did my first one, so I'm figuring out the logistics behind that. I just did that on a, a six-unit over in central Washington. So I'd have to dig a little bit deeper to to share logistics because I've only done it once. Very cool. Very cool. So you can on the, on the ones you have done, uh, a cost segregation studies, 
and just yeah, appreciate I'm, the whole thing in a year. Is is that right? I'll I'll be doing a cost seg on the thirty eight, and I've never had a, like a super high earned income, which is why I love doing these podcasts because people think, well, you probably had a super high earned income and a nice job that paid for all this. I've never had an income worth cost segging. So now that I've got a, all these rentals, I mean, the, the rentals are bringing in 60, 70 grand a month. It's like, well, now I kind of have to start thinking about this stuff. But I, like my best year ever prior to this year was $30,000 in income. So I've never had to worry about it. It's awesome, man. Congrats. That's, that's so awesome. So talking about taxes, a lot of times when people are selling their property, especially for a couple million dollars, the thing that they worry about is paying the taxes. And this is something that I recently learned that I feel like some people have wrong in their mind is I've got this property, it's worth $2 million. And if I sell or finance it to someone, that's going to delay the tax payment. But actually in that transition, um, the title is transferring names and that is a sale which is a taxable event so they are actually going to pay the capital gains tax on that transaction so um what my question that comes out of that i guess is what would be a strategy that you see that could potentially delay the the tax payment because there's there's no way around paying taxes it's you know the two things that are sure in life are taxes and death so um for someone in that situation, say the seller says, I want to get rid of this property. I would sell it to you, but I don't want to pay the capital gains tax. What would you come at them with? What type of strategy? I mean, if if we know it's a certainty and they're going to pay it someday, my philosophy is acknowledge it. Look, I wouldn't want to pay the capital gains tax either, but the reality is you're in a position that most people aren't in and you made a lot of money. And you're going to have to pay a little bit of taxes for it. If I knew a way that could get you out of that, I would do it. Mm-hmm. But but if you're going to sell it either way, let's do this together because I'm going to make sure that you're taken care of, right? You got to find a way to, to spin it. Now there's, you can elongate the taxes, but then I'm not you know, a tax professional. I just defer to my CPA on this. But my understanding is that they pay taxes when the gain is received. And I could potentially be wrong on that but i put a little mm-hmm. bit of money down they usually don't receive a gain yet yeah so they can talk with their cpa about planning that out and maybe we do partial um equity payments each year so we do extra debt pay down every other year at x amount of dollars so that they stay below whatever percentage tax bracket they want to be in because it's a long-term capital gain typically on the seller finance stuff mm-hmm. but um Again, that just comes down to being as creative. But I just acknowledge, hey, you're in a position that most people aren't in. I don't want you to pay the taxes either. Yeah. You just got to sell them on the idea like, hey, you made a lot of money. Having to pay a lot of taxes is a good thing. Well, I wouldn't say it's a good (laughs) thing, but it's a necessary item that follows making a lot of money. Not a good thing, but yeah. yeah, Having to pay a lot of tax means you made a lot of money. It's a good uh, problem to have. Yeah. it, and that was just, it was a conversation I was having because my understanding was like they're not receiving the capital gain, so they don't have to pay that yet. But really, uh, when the title transfers, that's the sale, and then they are loaning you the uh, the rest of the money. So in a way, they did receive it. They just loaned it back to you. So it, it may um, pertain to the particular paperwork and how you do it, but uh, that was just something that, you know... Um, thought i'd bring up because it wasn't the way that i understood it before either okay i don't know yeah i'm not a tax expert (laughs) either but um i figured maybe you would have explored that concept yeah i've just found that they've they've had to pay excise tax when it transfers and then uh if if they have a gain realized at the sale they'll pay taxes on that and then they realize more then and they'll have taxes on that and that that's what i've experienced yeah Uh, that might be how it works it was just a conversation I had recently that uh, changed my perspective. So I had a, I had a few questions in terms of um, your deal flow. I mean, how, how do you get so many deals into your pipeline? Um, I mean, you're talking about 500 units next year. I mean, 
Where do you locate these units? Do you have people coming to you constantly? Do you, do you network? I mean, what, what's your, your method of getting these deals in your pipeline? Yeah, so my my method is just by building relationships with people. It, I don't get my deals from brokers. And they're typically not on the MLS. I've gotten a handful of my properties. And by handful, I mean two. Um, I got the 38 and the 12, my first 12 plaques from the MLS. But the rest have been through building out relationships. So it, I just try and call them up, call up the owner, and say, hey, I saw you own this. Don't want to buy it. Don't know how to buy it. Want to learn how you did it. And that kind of follows off of our gotcha. conversation earlier today. But every mm-hmm. deal I find is from Google Maps. People don't believe me when I say that. It's just, but it is Google Maps. It's very simple. I believe if too many people, and by too many, I mean all of them, everybody overcomplicates the real estate game. And that's why it makes them go slow. Like you could have all the information in the world but until you know what you're doing you're going to go slow and so when people overcomplicate it with a ton of information it slows them down where i gather a little bit of information i get super certain about that and that allows me to go quickly awesome uh another question in terms of uh funding your deals you've, you spoke about bringing in kind of uh, um, capital investors into your deals uh, structuring it that way um I just lost my train of thought on that. But um, I also wanted to know, um, you're doing them just specifically in Washington? Yeah. And then, yeah, so it's all in Washington. And then on the investor piece, I structure it sometimes as debt and sometimes as equity. But if I structure it as equity, there's always 100% of the time a buyout agreement to where I have the right to buy them out. And or if I can't, I will get cashed out of the deal because I, I don't want to be partner with people long term I mean other than my buddy Christian he's probably the only guy I'll partner with forever um, on, on deals like super long term I don't want to be financially tied to a bunch of people so it's it's all short shorter term in the investment space four to five years max and I'll have a buyout agreement if it's equity and if it's debt then I just have a debt obligation I got to hit and pay them off which one do you prefer Equity or debt? Equity seems to perpetually be more expensive. So I, I prefer debt. Mm-hmm. And But is it harder to get an investor as debt or, or is there really not much of a difference? There's not much of a difference because of how I cultivate my relationships. People do business with Christian and myself today because they want to. We give them good returns. It's not something that they couldn't get somewhere else though. And it always comes back to, well, why would they pick you or why would they pick me? Like if the price were the same, why would they go with Cody over Christian or Christian over somebody else? We, we cultivate relationships to where if we want to structure it as debt, then they'll structure it as debt. Sometimes we're like, well, let, we don't care if it costs more. This deal is great. Let's bring them in as equity and cash them out later. Then we'll do that. It's We have a runway because, and like you guys, in our 20s, we have so much time to play this game that it doesn't really matter, right? It, it does, but it doesn't. Because if we can pay them more and it costs us more, so what? We make someone else a bunch of money. It's just great for building out your story. Mm. Yeah, and as a as a 21-year-old, if you only made a little bit of the potential money instead of all of it, it's not as big of a deal when... Um, you know, you've got so much more of your life ahead of you. Like it's, if you lost everything today, but you still had your knowledge, it's like, well, whatever. I'm, you know, I'm just as broke as every other 21 year old, but I have the well, knowledge yeah. and experience. Let's not, <laughs> let's not lose everything. That would be unpleasant. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, that's, that's the thing that uh, I say all the time. It's like, if, you know, if everything went south, lost everything, well, just as broke as every other 21 year old, but uh, I have more knowledge and experience to uh, figure everything else out. And I, I learned a lesson from, someone that I booked this meeting with they ended up selling me a property recently but it hadn't I didn't think they were gonna and they said you know if if you can do these owner contracts in perpetuity and you structure them as non-recourse essentially you're putting all the risk on the real estate so if it goes into a position where one property is not doing so well 
right? Or all the properties aren't doing so well because we're in an economic downturn. You can pick and choose which property you want to keep because you use all the rents from all the properties to pay the mortgage and pay the bills and fund the reserves. And then you lose the properties you couldn't maintain. They go back to the owner. Hmm. And so I, I really like that a lot. Um, when you talk about losing it all, it's like, I've got everything in a separate LLC and all the, the debt is non-recourse. So if I can't pay the debt, it just goes back to the owner. There's no more recourse. They take a property that's worth more today than when they sold it. They're happy. The rents are higher. They're happy. I took great care of it because I wanted to keep it forever. Again, they're happy, but I can take all the rents, all the cash flow um, before paying that mortgage. And I can pay all the stuff that I really want to keep long-term if the economy goes down so that I can protect something. So I don't have to go to nothing. I like to put the risk on the real estate and make sure that I don't screw anybody over in the process. If I lose it, it just goes back to the owner in better condition than they sold it to me as. And then I get to maintain at least a couple assets because going to nothing is not fun. I've, I've watched people do it. it they, they're not happy people. <laughs> That's such a unique perspective to think about when you're doing the seller financing. I mean, the, you're not going to end up in court. It's just going straight back to who, who lent it to you, essentially. That, that's that's yeah. powerful. I think that's and, something a lot of people would uh, take a lot of value from in that little snippet right there. Yeah, it's just, I mean, I want to put the risk on the real estate, but I want to make sure that I can maintain something if the economy goes down. If I had to pick and choose between my portfolio, like I've got a handful of sixplexes, I've got a sevenplex, I've got a couple 12s, a 38, and looking at picking up a 15 and a 14, I would sacrifice everything for my 38 and my 12. I'd, I'd be able to take care of all the investors in the meantime because I've gotten a lot of the investor debt paid off, which I'm happy about. Uh, but if I had to pick and choose, I could finagle everything to where investors are covered. You never lose investor money ever, right? That's a no-no. Uh, and I could keep the 12 and the 38 if we had an economic downturn. And everything else would go back to the sellers. Investors would be paid. And I would have something opposed to nothing. If, if you can figure out a business model that allows you to keep something when everything goes bad, it's going to be more sustainable long-term than if you're hoping everything works. It's all or nothing, right? That's a bad mentality. How do you think someone could set themselves up into that position where they're not seller financing the properties, where they are you know, buying them through banks and getting bank loans? Is there um, a way that you see that they could set themselves up in a similar type of protection? Yeah, the, the similar. Um, granted, I've never done a bank loan, but once you start getting into the bigger multifamily you can look at non-recourse loans when you start getting a million plus loan balances on the apartment space. And then even more so when you're like three to five plus million and you just got to play the game to get there though. You're going to temporarily be in a position of a lot of risk um, relative to not having a lot of cash flow in the beginning. That's how everybody starts. You grow your cash flow. You move your properties up, you get a little bit bigger, get a little more cash flow, move the properties up, and eventually you get to non-recourse loans. I was fortunate to be able to skip that with the owner contracts. But if someone wants to just do the bank, I just say, why? And then they'll say, well, there's more opportunities. I'm like, yeah, there are. But if you want to skip steps, then you're going to sacrifice some stuff. So if people want to go straight to what I'm doing, do it. It's, it's that simple. If you want to be an apartment investor, go buy apartments. You don't have to do the single family stuff. You got to switch your mindset though. And just note that the small stuff won't be an option. And so I would get rid of the idea of buying a fourplex. If you want to go buy apartments. Now you could go do the house hack thing. I've never been able to do that because I don't qualify 81 rentals. And I still don't qualify for FHA, which is annoying. Same. Maybe, maybe someday. There, there's this duplex. I actually toured it uh, yesterday, and the uh, the sellers want two hundred forty five thousand, and I wouldn't qualify for that loan on my own. <laughs> so even, <laughs> even FHA, anything, so uh, might not be able to make it happen, but um, it's whatever. 
Well, I, you know, just one day at a time, maybe someday we'll be able to get a $245,000 property. In the meantime, I'll just keep getting a couple million in debt more and yeah. more, keep stacking it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, if, if people want to do that route and you don't want to do the seller financed space, that's fine. You just got to play the game so you can go get multiple million dollar loans. You're going to typically need a net worth to back that loan. So you're going to have to be really strategic on how you build your equity up relatively quickly. Going from zero to a million in a couple of years is doable. And, and, and it's just, you don't have to win the lottery. You just got to be really strategic on how you're buying opportunities. And I know that for a fact because uh, I've done that. And then my Christian or my friend Christian, not my Christian, my friend Christian went from uh, zero to 55 apartment units in his first year. He started with $100,000, which is a lot more money than I had when I started. But some people are in that position. It is a doable deal. And he's going to pass the million dollar net worth really quickly. I mean, probably early Q1 once we close one more deal. So that you just have to be strategic either way you go. But if, if you want to do the seller finance route, let that be the only option. Don't look at FHA. Don't look at conventional. Perfect your story. Your story is going to be worth more than the asset ever will be. So if you can figure out how to utilize your story to get in the room by being relatable, get people to work with you because of your targets and buy into your ideas because of significance, you'll you'll find the seller finance deals. There's so many out there. That's not a normal thing to say. Most people say they're hard to find, but I'm a little bit against the grain on that. I say they're everywhere. There's so many opportunities. You just have to know how to get them to bind your ideas to trust you. What are some actionable steps someone could take as they're uh, trying to get started on maybe their first seller finance deal? Like no real estate experience, haven't done it, you know, haven't talked to a seller yet, don't know anyone that owns any real estate. What are some steps they could take? Um, yeah, let's say they have like maximum twenty five thousand. Less well, than that. Less than that. Zero dollars. Zero dollars. Well, I was gonna say twenty five grand was a whopping twenty two thousand more than I had. Yeah. But okay. Uh, okay. Five. Let's do five. Zero. Uh, zero. All right. So you have zero dollars. Those people today. listening right now they have no money to put towards real estate, but they could still do it. That's the point I'm trying to get to. Yeah. Gotcha. So, you, so you got no money. What you need is an opportunity. People always spend time looking for money. It's why they get into wholesaling. I hate wholesaling. I have friends that are making 50, 60 grand a month earned income wholesaling real estate. And they're missing the true value of what real estate is for. Right? They say they're wholesaling to go get money to buy real estate. When, when you don't need money to buy real estate, it's, you need a connection right? They're trading time for money to put into real estate when they, they're being so creative to sell a contract. They could be e- even less creative than that and just buy the real estate itself. So I would really set what your goal is. I would establish what you're aiming for, what your timeline is, who you need to talk to. You may say, well, I don't know anybody. Well, I was in that position. How do you fix that? Go to Google Maps, find a rental property, Look up who owns it on the tax assessor website. Figure out how to contact them. I usually just Google them and I'll find the number, but let's say you don't. Figure out where they work. Put in their name. Put in their uh, county or their city that they live in. It'll usually pull up what job they work at and call their office. I've done that before too. Get their phone number through their office. Typically, they're going to say they can't give it out. Do it anyways. (laughs) And I, I've literally just said that and they've given it to me. So you just got to be really confident and know that whether you have money or not, you can add value to someone else. But you can't add value to them if you can't take them out to coffee. People that own real estate outright that can hold an owner contract don't typically need more money. There's no monetary value that I can add to the guy making 440 grand a month with 500-something units paid off. It's just, that's the reality. I can't give them money and make them happy. What I can do is I can take what they teach me, apply it, and help them feel like they're passing the torch. 
So if you can look for that type of opportunity, you're golden. You don't need capital anymore. That is that is the golden nugget right there. It's just you're you're not going to in any way financially help the person who, like you said, is making four hundred grand a month in cash flow. There's nothing you could do to to help him, you know. Uh, but it's it's the emotional attachment of this property that they've owned for thirty years, this uh, person that they've been having the conversations with and building relationships with, and then they're able to, like you said, pass the torch and um, you know watch all their work uh, benefit someone else in a in a different way and in a way that is benefiting them emotionally. It's and, and it's all very genuine. Because I want to be the person they can pass the torch to because I know that I'm going to take care of it. Mm-hmm. They don't, which is why you can't do the cold call and just keep on the call. you got to go meet them. You have to build the relationship and figure out why they do what they do and why they're going where they're going. Because nobody just stumbles into 30 to $40 million of real estate owned outright. It just You don't do that. A very, very small percentage would ever, ever even inherit that. And I know for a fact this guy built it because I know about his first property. I know about his second deal. I know his most recent deals. He's still buying stuff. But it's just to have fun. And one way for him to give back is to help younger generations do that because this is where we have an advantage, especially as younger individuals, is there's not a lot of us doing this. So yep. we have instant credibility when we walk in and we know what we're talking about, or at least we seem to know what we're talking about. Hey, this is why I want to do what I'm doing. These are my targets. This is why I think multifamily is the way to go. They'll instantly latch onto that because there's no one else doing that at our age. Right. And at our age, you're building these relationships with people and say they don't want to sell it to you. So they're, there's, you know, they're just not ready to sell it. You could still build this relationship and you can still learn so much from them because they are someone that owns a ton of real estate and they've at one point in their life been 21 years old and maybe they didn't know anything about real estate and they've gone on the, the same journey that you're trying to go on. So you can learn from those people, whether yeah, they and, sell you a property or not. You, and I don't ask them to learn. sell it. I, yeah. I, I, won't, I won't ask them to. We go through their story and I, this is the most powerful piece is I, I learned how they did it. It's more important than the, the what they did. It's, it's how they did it. I don't need them to sell it to me. I'm just going to ask them, hey, how do you recommend I, I get started doing what you're doing? Because mm-hmm. I, I don't have anybody else in my existence who's done this. Yeah. I know a guy that owns half a town. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, you have more market share than any single person could. I'm trying to invest in that area. I have yet to do that. But uh, like, how the heck did you come into this position starting with nothing? It's, it's phenomenal. And so, uh, and if he never, that... if he never sells a single property to you, you're going to get so much value still. Oh yeah. It's like, how do you go from zero to this? It, it's, it's just remarkable. And so I ask, hey, how would you recommend I get started in this space? If I've never done a duplex before, I just bought three of them. They were contiguous, the side by side. It's like, how do you recommend I get started with duplexes? Never done it before. I've never been able to justify smaller properties. Well, you buy three of them at a time. Okay, well, how do I do that? Well, I'll sell you these three. And then I I have a friend who has a whole bunch of duplexes side by side. He can sell you those two and we'll do it on a contract. Don't worry about it. You know, zero money done. (laughs) That. I wouldn't have been in that position, and it sounds ridiculous saying it out loud, but I wouldn't have been in a position to do that if I hadn't reached out to the guy and tried to build a relationship. People that own real estate know people that own real estate. So if I can establish a great relationship with one, that gets me an in with all of them. Yeah. That's, I mean, success is when preparation meets opportunity. And putting yourself in front of more opportunities is one of the steps to success. And cause I, I can imagine you've probably talked to, you know, hundreds of property owners at something like that close to there, or maybe not that many. No, no. probably. Oh shoot. 20 or 30. Really? Yeah. Because I'm not trying to get them to sell me something. Yeah. 
I want to build a relationship. I've it's probably twenty or thirty. Yeah, maybe less. Well, that that makes it even more you know impressive and powerful that it's yeah. just building genuine relationships does not take hundreds of you know hundreds of meetings, sitting down with coffee with a new person every week. No, it 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 really doesn't. I mean, it, as long as you're being genuine, you're doing good business, and you have good intent. Like the, it's not that hard. I have a wholesaler buddy who flips houses. He probably makes million two to million five a year flipping houses. He's doing hundred to hundred twenty thousand profit per, and he's doing minimum of one a month. Great business. However, he says he's lucky if he gets one lead out of a thousand mailers. That's awful. Yeah. I, he's making a lot of money, but the percentages. It's like I, I don't like that business. It's it's not relationship based. It's transactional. I'd rather have one relationship than ten transactions. Definitely. Wow. Well, that's a, there's a lot to unpack there and so much advice. Like I said, it just naturally progresses into advice, but um, we'll keep moving on. What are some books that you have either given away or recommended the most to other people to learn about entrepreneurship, real estate, et cetera? Oh, just a, a fun book is Deals on Wheels by Lonnie Scruggs. That's kind okay. of a fun one. I've never heard of that one. What's it about? That's about owner contracts. That's uh, it's essentially micro lending, and the idea is you you pay cash for a mobile, like a mobile home park, and it's not a park, but it's just like a mobile home. And let's say you pay cash, and it's in a not a great area for five grand. Granted, these are like the '90s numbers, but let's say you pay five grand for it. There's a lot of people that want to own something like that because they don't qualify for anything else. And so you buy mm. it for five grand cash. Now, people that are trying to rent a space like that don't know that they could just pay five grand cash and, and get it. So you turn around and you sell it to them for $15,000 on a contract, and you have a $2,500 down payment. So you get 50% of your capital back immediately. And now they're making payments of 500 bucks a month. So it takes you five months to get all your money back out. And you have another $10,000 coming back. You make 300% on your money over the course of one to two years. That's a, that's a good deal for micro lending. And it talks a little bit about contracts. That's just kind of a fun one. But other than that, the seller finance stuff, there's not a lot of books. Uh, for inspirational books like Mindset, 10x Rule, Grant Cardone, that's a good one. Be Obsessed or Be Average, another great book that got me intrigued. And you, you definitely have to be a little bit obsessed to make this stuff work. But when it clicks, it gets a lot easier and just mentally because there's a lot to learn. It's a simple business, but it's not easy. Talking about that uh, deals on wheels, we just interviewed some guys on our last episode, Clint Turner and Kyle Bryant, and they do land investing. And they do the thing, you know, send out a thousand mailers and um, hopefully one or two people reach out, but they'll have a deal where they only have to buy it for, say, five grand. And they'll find someone that wants it and they'll put a $8,000 down payment and make a $350 a month note payment. So they yeah. make all their money back immediately or sometimes before the transaction actually occurs plus cash flow, uh, you know, for maybe a five-year balloon payment or whatever. So that's, there's so many strategies that you can get creative and you don't have to have the bank involved and you can make more money than, you know, what you paid for the property before you even yeah. pay for it. Yeah, so there's, there's so many ways to do this real estate game. It is a game. It's it's literally like a game. There's you know there's rules. There's uh, cheat codes sometimes, and uh, and you better follow the rules. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, you know you, you get good at it. You keep compounding, and you know eventually you rule the game. You win. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah. Do you guys have any other questions or thoughts that might be helpful for your listeners? No. Uh, we really hit a lot of the. Um, 
the stuff that I, I try to ask the questions as they pop up. So hopefully we hit the type of things that people were wondering, but um, I know you probably got to go. It is not the same time here as it is where you're at. So you're still in the middle of your day, but if you've got any last words or if there's anywhere where people can reach out to you and learn a little bit more about you, let us know. Yeah. I, I guess my last little one liner that I've found to be very true is, might be helpful for folks just because it makes money doesn't mean it makes sense and vice versa just because it makes sense doesn't mean it makes money if you can keep that in your mind when you're doing stuff you're going to avoid a lot of distractions and if you want to contact me my instagram's cody d 2020 